Father in heaven, we thank you that we are yours forever and that that is based on your strength and not on our own. And we are grateful you have made us yours. And Lord, I pray that in making us your sheep, Lord, we pray that now as we hear your word, we would receive it as the voice of our good shepherd. So Lord, I pray you'd make me faithful to proclaim only what is in your word, what your word teaches, and let, let all of us, Lord, embrace your words as the voice of not just a good shepherd, but the good shepherd who has already laid down his life for us. So I pray that you would bless us in the preaching of your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We'll start with a couple of questions. Is a church the people who gather together on a given Sunday? Is that what a church is? Is it the group of people who gather together, together on a given Sunday? Are all those people rightly called the church or a church? Or how do you know if you are part of a church? How do you know if you're part of a church? If you have a church or if a church has you? And these, we've seen that these questions now, we've been leading, as we go going through this series, we've been leading to the point now that we realize that this is actually a very important question, isn't it? Because we've seen that the, the church and the local church, all local churches, they're part of the Holy Spirit's work to expose false assurance before it's too late and to provide sweet assurance to prevent his blood-bought sheep from living in a fear that they might not be God's children and might actually be God's sworn enemies. And God uses the church in his work to accomplish these things, to expose false assurance before it's too late and to provide sweet assurance to his people who might otherwise wonder if they are actually still God's enemies. And so we've looked at what a church is. We've also looked at what a church does. We've seen that a church gathers regularly to worship God and to be fed by him by the preaching of the word, the reading of the word, singing together, praying together, baptizing new believers, and offer to believers the gift of Lord's Supper until the Lord returns or until he calls them home. And so we've seen that this is what the household of God does when they gather as the household of God, when they gather as a church. So that's part of God's design to call people to himself, to shape them as his own, and then to hold them fast in this world of trouble. Today we're going to be looking at the building of this temple, the household, the church, we're going to be looking at a couple of questions. We're looking at, first of all, how is the temple, how is the church built? How is it built? That's the first question. Second question is, what is it made up of? We've already looked at what does it look like and what does it do, but now how is it built and what's it made up of? What are its parts? Another way to look at this is, who is part of the church rather than who is a guest of the church? Really important questions in light of all the things that we've been learning as we've been going through that. And that's going to bring us to our first point, which we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and 3. So 
Uh, turn to, in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, if you've got your Bible with you. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We'll be reading the first chapter, the whole chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And in there, we'll be looking at the first point, which is this. A church is a holy temple assembled by the gospel. It's a holy temple assembled by the gospel. So 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing except among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in, 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 in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. So that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not, by, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood, understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Stop there for a little bit. We see the church is a holy temple, temple, assembled, assembled by the gospel. So here, Paul is addressing the Corinthian church, which by all accounts, if you've read the first, uh, the first uh, letter to the Corinthians, if by all accounts, you will realize that this church is a mess, an absolute mess, a church which is embracing sin as a badge of honor, which is unable to reject false teachers somehow, it is incredibly divided. It's divided along the lines of rich and poor. It's even divided based on which preachers they prefer. This is the church which was bragging about how they had a member who was committing adultery with his stepmother. And they were very proud of that. They thought that that meant them, made them a very gospel-y kind of a church. And so Paul brings them back to how the church was formed. That church was built by the preaching of the gospel. This is how it is to be built. And not the preaching of the gospel and other things. 
by the preaching of the gospel alone. So what does it mean then to build a church by the preaching of the gospel alone? Let's take a look here. First, in verse 1, it means proclaiming the testimony of God. See that? Paul is going to say in Acts chapter 20, you don't have to turn there, but you can look later, he's going to say that this means preaching the whole counsel of God. He's using the whole of the word of God. He's not leaving parts out. He's not picking and choosing based on what he thinks would be the most effective. No, the whole counsel of God. The preaching of the word of God builds the church. Second, though, it means in verse 2, preaching the entire word of God, the Bible, with an understanding of the death and resurrection of Christ. Christ and him crucified. Paul taught many things to the Corinthians. In fact, we look in this, this letter, he's not just teaching them Christ and him crucified. So what then does he mean? When he says, I preached Christ and him crucified, and only Christ, I resolved to know him and only him. See, Paul taught many things from all the scriptures to these people. However, he didn't use the scriptures to exalt the law of God so that we can trust it and be saved. He didn't use the scriptures to exalt Moses and David so that we can trust in them and be saved. He didn't use the scriptures to exalt the wrath of God so that we might trust it and be saved. He declared all of those true and wonderful things from God's word for the purpose of demonstrating that it is Christ alone whom God has given to be saved, that there is no other name in heaven and on earth but the name of Christ to be saved. So he's using the whole word of God not leaving anything out, but it is only Christ that he is proclaiming that builds a church, that draws men to the Father. It is the death and resurrection of Christ that draws men to the Father and makes them his. This is what built that church. A people gathered by the gospel and not by other means. So that's the, but what else does it mean? We can keep going in verses three and four. It means it the church is built in any way that didn't depend on anything but the power of the gospel. You see that in verses 3 and 4. The church is built in a way that didn't depend on anything but the power of the gospel. And so when the Corinthians were converted and a church was birthed in Corinth, it's not because the preaching was exciting or interesting to their unsaved hearts and minds. There were no gimmicks. No attempts to share the gospel in a way that anyone without the Holy Spirit would love it. Paul realized, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're going to hate this. This is going to push you away rather than draw you in. We see that in verses 5 through 16. The only thing that could explain the Corinthians' acceptance of the gospel, the only thing that could explain the birth of that Corinthian church was the Holy Spirit's work to convert dead men. Only people to whom God has given his spirit would have responded to the preaching of Paul. Nothing else could explain it. Nothing, out about, nothing else about Paul's preaching could explain how a church got birthed, how he gathered people. 
Because these people were dead in sin. Haters of God, enemies of God, children of wrath. And Paul preached to them a gospel that they could give up their lives and become God's obedient, loving, holy children by the death and resurrection of God's Son for sinners. They were offered reconciliation with the one they hated the most. The percentage of people who would truly respond to that without the Holy Spirit is exactly 0.0%. Given an eternity with the person whom they hate the most. Not only that, to obey him and treasure him and praise him. Preaching that gospel in that way is as wise as standing in a graveyard and preaching to corpses. The only way someone moves in that graveyard, if you're preaching, the only way that somebody moves in that graveyard is if a miracle happens. I think you'd agree. If preaching to a graveyard produces a church, you can be pretty sure God's involved. And so there is a temptation to build churches in other ways, perhaps even using the Bible to do this. So I could ignore the purpose of the Bible, which Paul has just said is the glorifying of the triune God through the redemption of sinners through Christ. So I could ignore the purpose of the Bible, and I could actually use the Bible to gather a bigger group of people who don't actually love the Lord. Paul could have used the Bible to gather a group of people who were united on their love of healthy marriages. Or a group of people who were united on their love for law and order. Or who were united in their desire to have obedient children. Or who were united by their desire to be wise with money. And none of those things are bad things, I hope you can see. And the Bible does speak about them. But when the Bible does say these things, they are never the point. The point is the glory of the triune, three-in-one God who redeems sinners by the death and resurrection of his son and about his son's everlasting kingdom. Those would be ways of preaching to dead men that's going to produce something like a church. Gathering a group of people with a little bit of Bible teaching and perhaps a well-produced concert with smoke and lasers that might end up with a group of people calling themselves a church because you don't need the Spirit to enjoy that kind of thing. People who are dead in their sin can enjoy that kind of a thing. It's natural. Gathering a group of people with promises of signs and wonders and supernatural experiences along with Bible teaching, that could also end up with a group of people calling themselves a church even if none of them had the Holy Spirit. Social media is filled with ads for supernatural experiences and crystals. People love to see illusionists and mentalists and psychics. That's not what Paul did in Corinth, though. Now, Paul was an apostle, and he did demonstrate this to the Corinthians at some point with miraculous gifts that God had promised to adorn the apostles with. 
It was not to get them converted. It merely proved that they were the ones who could essentially write the New Testament. Paul himself says in the previous chapter, in chapter 1, that that's not how the Corinthian church was birthed. That's not what he means when he says that it was by the power of God. Read 1 Corinthians 1, 20 to 25 with me, in case you think this is what he means. Oh, it says by the power of God. That means he preached the gospel and miracles happened. That's not what he means. Listen to this. 1 Corinthians 1, 20. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Here we go. For Jews demand signs, miracles, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Jews and Gentiles came wanting something. We will accept this from you. And neither of them got what they wanted. You were not given those things which you as unsaved people wanted, says Paul. Jews wanted miracles. Greek wanted wise-sounding speech. Instead, Paul gave them what every man without the Holy Spirit would think is foolish. As foolish as preaching to a graveyard. What Paul then means when he says that their faith rested on the power of God, 2 verse 5, he's saying, brothers, you can have confidence that you belong to God because there's no other explanation for your conversion and the birth of your church. There's no other explanation other than the miraculous internal work of the Holy Spirit to convert an enemy of God. No one was impressing you. No one was trying to make you feel better about yourself. No one was promising you anything other than reconciliation with God and submitting to his kingdom. You were told that you were a wicked enemy of God bound for the fires of hell with no way to save yourself from what you actually deserve. But that God in his mercy sent his son to take your sin on his shoulders and take hell instead of you on the cross. And that he rose from the dead on the third day. You were told to abandon all hopes of ruling and reigning over yourself and to abandon yourself to the reign of Christ. And you embraced that. How else can you explain that but by a work of the Holy Spirit? So brothers and sisters, unbelieving guests, if you now consider yourself a Christian, I want you to consider your conversion. Consider your conversion for a moment. Can it be explained by anything other than a miraculous work of God. I'm not talking about a miraculous experience. I think you understand that. And we don't all remember our conversions. I actually don't remember the moment of my conversion.
But I want you to consider whether anything other than the power of God could explain your conversion. Were you trying to impress a young woman? Were you interested in great music? Were you lonely and wanted a group of friends? Were you trying to look like a moral person? Were you trying to get rid of bad habits or addictions? Now, it's likely that for most of us, we began with ulterior motives. It's very likely true. But the question is, did the church through which you were converted, did that church exploit those? Or try diligently to ensure that your conversion was not based on those motivations? Because in a true conversion, those false motivations are replaced with the true motivation of being reconciled to the God who you once hated. And you get the place, you would get to the place that you would even say, even if you never got any of those other motivations, a healthy bank account, a healthy marriage, you would still want Christ, even if you couldn't have those other things. So winning people and building a church with mixed motivations is like digging up graves and putting puppet strings on dead bodies. If they move, if they respond to your teaching, you have no reason to believe that it's because they're alive. You're pulling all kinds of strings. That doesn't take life. And there's several other more likely explanations for why that church has formed or why that person calls themselves a Christian. Churches who evangelize or build themselves exploiting other motivations other than the gospel of God, they rob God of glory, but they also rob true saints of confidence that they truly were converted. See, when the only explanation for a church's existence is a Holy Spirit-worked love of the gospel of Christ and a love of God for his kingdom, it is clear that God has then built for himself a holy temple. So, this does then lead us to our next point, which asks the question, what is a church built up out of? So we've seen how it's supposed to be built. Now, what is it built up out of? We've already seen in past sermons what a church does, okay? Now the question is, what is it built up out of? And that's our second point, which is this. A church is a holy temple built of holy stones. Let's keep reading in, verse, in, in chapter 3. We're going to read all of chapter 3 together. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one. 
and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid the foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burnt up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy it, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of, the, the wisdom of the, this world is folly with God. For it, it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the, word, or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ's, Christ is God's. Draw your attention to verse 17 when it says, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. We can't see that in English, but that is a plural you. Some of you might say use, use guys. You are that temple. He's speaking of that church, the Corinthian church, is a temple. So Paul reminds the Corinthians that God builds holy temples. That's the kind of temple that God builds. He builds holy temples. And Brother George read for us a psalm earlier where the writer expresses his great love for the temple of God. He himself was limited in his access to the temple, this writer. He could only go to certain places, and he was limited in how often he could go there. But then he notices a sparrow. A sparrow has built his nest in the temple and, and lives there, and he's jealous of the sparrow. And why would he be jealous of a sparrow who just lives in the temple, never having to leave, has perfect access to it? Why would he be jealous of the sparrow being part, being in that temple? Because the temple was the place where the people of God, sinful as they are, could delight in and could enjoy the presence of a holy God. And the reason that it was possible was that God provided sacrifices, which happened at the temple where blood was spilt for their sins. Death is the wages of sin, and God provided animals as substitutes. And so the real benefit was the presence of a holy God for a sinful people, and it came at the cost of life. And Paul tells us that 
This now is the church. The church is the temple of God. It too is a holy temple, except it's a temple made up of people. It's not a temple that people visit. It is a temple made up of people. Better than sparrows now. Temples are to be built the way that God himself has designed them, says Paul. The builders are not free to build as they wish. We've already seen that. The Corinthian church had begun this way, had begun in a way that could only be described by a miracle of God, the work of the Holy Spirit. Paul already went there. When you began, the only thing that could explain you as a church was the Holy Spirit. But now, it's quite possible to explain their ways, the church, in ways that don't need the Holy Spirit. Their unity and disunity could be explained just as mere human behavior. They follow men. You know, one is the Paul group, another is the Apollos group, there's another the Cephas or Peter, the Peter group. Non-Christians can do that, says Paul. Stadiums can be filled with dead souls gathered by a common bond of a man that they wish to follow. People follow men. They're pretty good at that. Concerts, political rallies, sports, motivational speakers. The Corinthian church now has a unity that can be explained by something other than the miraculous power of God. Loving the stuff of their church can be explained the way that I could explain why I love the football team that I love. But I wonder if you notice that Paul connects the method of how it's built, right, to the materials of the building. In verses 10 to 15, building with something other than the gospel, the foundation, it's going to result in you building a church that has un holy parts unholy building materials you see here Paul is talking about the people the stones which the church is built of are supposed to be living stones we see that in 1 Peter 2 the church is built on a foundation a core a method a motivation a message but if it's built on anything other than the gospel it's going to be composed of some living and some dead stones So Paul compares this to materials that God commanded to be used for the Old Testament temple. Gold and silver, precious stones and wood. Items which God had set apart, he'd made holy for the purpose of a temple. And Paul contrasts that with other things that God did not set apart. He did not make holy to build a temple out of. Hay and straw. So Paul says, you guys are have deviated from how you started. And now you're starting to build yourselves up with mixed materials. He says, there is a fire coming. The fires of judgment are coming. That's what he means by the day. It's probably capitalized in your translation. It's revealed by the day. The day of judgment. The fires are coming. And only the parts of the temple that are holy which means those who have been covered by the blood of Christ will survive the fire. 
everything else will be burnt up. And so a preacher, a church, must dare not build in such a way that produces a church made up of people who don't have to love the gospel. That church is going to be burnt up. It's not going to last through the judgment of God. So much of the church is actually not Christians. They're not covered by the blood of Christ. They're not made holy by Christ. And so the best case scenario for the people who did that is that they will be forgiven for building that church. That's the best case scenario is that it is something that they'll have to be forgiven for rather than rewarded for. And the worst case scenario, we can see that in 16 and 17, is that they're actually, the people who are building that church, they themselves are not actually Christians. And they too will be destroyed with the rest of the unbelievers that they built their church out of. Those are terrible words. A terrible warning. But it is a warning which God gives to his church because he loves them. And he wants them to come to repentance. So God builds holy temples made out of holy stones. A church is not to be built in such a way that people who are not holy will love it and call it their own. And that doesn't mean that we treat non-believers poorly. It means that we just constantly feed on a food that only holy people can endure for a significant part of time, period of time. A food which is rich and hearty and delightful and nourishing and good. But not to men who hate God. And so he builds his actual churches out of holy stones. Not stones that are, have to be good enough to join the church. Quite the opposite. It's, it's stones that confess that they aren't good enough but that Christ died in their place and rose from the dead. That means if you do belong to a church and they say, you belong to us, it should give you some measure of confidence that you are one of those living stones. Of course, they don't know your heart. But this is part of the reason why God gave the church is to help with that question. But that's only valuable if the test of belonging is a love of the gospel. Paul begins his letter in 1 Corinthians 1 by calling them saints. Saying that they had been called to be saints together that they are sanctified in Christ. That means that they were made holy by Christ, not something that they had themselves done. And that's why Christ, why God can say he builds a holy people, a holy church, a holy temple made out of living stones, not dead stones. He does it out of holy materials. And so the church here, I want you to see this because it is not something that our modern church, I'd say in the last 50 years, embraces. In fact, often it flatly rejects this as being ungodly, as being unchristian and being ungospelly. But I hope that you can see from this passage that the church 
has a responsibility to be holy. That's part of our responsibility. To work in such a way that we are made up of a people who have actually been washed by the blood of Jesus. And that means that there's going to be two groups of people who gather together on a Sunday morning for worship. Two kinds of people present as the church gathers. There will be people who are part of the church. And there will be those who are gladly welcomed guests who we pray will be saved and then become part of the church, not just guests. But we are not to build our church out of those people until they come to Christ and he declares that they are holy by his death instead of them. So there's going to be these living stones in the church and those who are visiting the temple of God. And I want to ask you, which are you? Just because you're joining a church for worship doesn't mean that you have a church or that you're part of a church. Just because you gather with the family of God doesn't mean that you are part of the family of God. It's entirely possible to join a family reg regularly for family gatherings and not be part of that family. It's entirely possible for an enemy of God, destined for judgment and wrath for their sin, to join together with those who used to be enemies of God, but who are now his dearly loved children because of what Christ has done. And if that is you, I want to take a moment to plead with you to be reconciled to God. Because if it is you, you are a, a guest in the household of God. You need to realize that not everyone is as blessed as you are to have such access to the gospel. To hear the invitation to be reconciled by, to God by trusting in Christ's death and resurrection. And if you don't repent and believe when the day comes, this access to the gospel will not count as a blessing to you, but actually as a curse. It will be worse than for you for other people who were never even aware of the forgiven fa family of God and the way God sent his son to make them his children. And so we would implore you to turn from being a rebellious enemy of God and trust in Christ's death for sinners and his resurrection from the dead. And then you'll no longer be an enemy treated as a guest, but a beloved child of God declared to be pure and holy and who can delight in his eternal love rather than dread the judgment for your sin. Now the church is God's temple and it's meant to be a holy one because God is holy. So it will be built with holy means and it'll also be built of holy parts, not those who deserve it, but who are there on the merits of Christ alone. And so God has graciously given the church, churches, as a foretaste of this glory. And we see in Revelation chapter 3, if you've got your Bibles, turn there. 
that God ratchets up the prayer of that psalmist to go from, oh, I want to be able to, I, I visit the temple, I can come into the temple, but I'd rather be a sparrow because a sparrow gets to live there. And God exceeds that desire. This is Revelation chapter 3, given to a persecuted church. Revelation 3, verse 7. This is given to a local church. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which, is, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you've kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole earth to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven in my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have made your church a holy church. And Lord, I pray that we would love your holiness, that your Spirit would work that in us, that we would long to be holy and we would also long for people to come to you so that they would be covered by the blood of Christ, be made holy, and so join, not as guests or visitors, but as part of your temple, your church. And Lord, as we now prepare to celebrate the Lord's Supper, I pray, Lord, that you would use it as a preaching of the gospel, Lord, to convict us of sin and to assure us of your promises that all who trust in Christ belong to you, are part of your family, and will be forever. And I pray that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen.